0: Hi, this is Jason Smith and I wanted to take a moment before we start just to give you a heads up that this is going to be the second to last episode in this first season of Digital Jung. I'm going to be releasing the last episode next week on June 17th, 2021, and then I'll be taking an extended hiatus during the months of July and August. And I'll return in September with a whole new season of episodes. As always, I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Digital Yum, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious but Not Religious Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we discover how a recognition of the dramatic structure of dreams can help us in our understanding and interpretation. So, that's the buried treasure. Coming now to the form of dreams we find everything from lightning impressions to endlessly spun-out dream narrative. Nevertheless, there are a great many average dreams in which a definite structure can be perceived, not unlike that of a drama. So this quote of Jung's comes from an essay titled On the Nature of Dreams and it's followed by his description of a four-part structure based on the structure of a drama that Jung suggests can be used for the interpretation and understanding of most dreams and this is a framework that I have found useful in my own work a kind of template that can be applied to symbolic materials such as dreams and fairy tales, to help kickstart the process of interpretation, particularly when the material in question seems complex or otherwise opaque. And in fact, it's the structure that I used when I was beginning to organize my thoughts about the fairy tale Old Sultan, which I explored in depth over the previous two episodes of this podcast. And what I thought I would do in this episode is to walk through the four stages of this interpretive structure using that fairy tale, Old Sultan, as a kind of lens or example of how to work with this model, with the idea that you can then take it and apply it to your own dreams or any other symbolic material that you want to understand more deeply. This episode, then, could be considered a kind of unofficial third part or addendum to the series of Old Sultan episodes. I won't repeat what I said in those episodes, so if you haven't had a chance to listen to them, you may want to do so in order to make the most of what follows. Now Jung sometimes uses different names for the four stages in the different places that he describes this structure in his writings. And there are also times when other authors such as Marie Louise von Franz uses three stages to describe this model instead of four effectively collapsing the first two into one, and it can get a little confusing and unclear. Whatever names are given to the various stages, however, the underlying structure always remains the same, and they all essentially describe the same progression. The four stages are the setting, the exposition, or development. The culmination, or peripeteia, And then finally, the solution, or the lysis. And the first stage actually has many names. Jung calls it the locale, the statement of place, and even sometimes the exposition. I prefer to call it the setting, because that's really the primary function of this phase of the narrative structure. The setting gives us the lay of the land, so to speak. It lets us know where it is that we're starting from. This stage, according to Jung, tells us the scene of the action, the people involved, and often the initial situation of the dreamer. And it's usually laid out in the first sentence or maybe at most the first two sentences. Even though the setting tends to come packaged in a very simple sentence, it can be deceptively important because it tells us which corner of the personality, as Marie-Louise von Franz puts it, that we're dealing with. So a dream that starts I was in my room in my childhood home and my parents were downstairs sets up a very different psychological situation than, say, I'm on a mountain climbing expedition with some people I've never met before. In Old Sultan, we get this first sentence. A farmer had a faithful dog named Sultan, who had grown old, and lost all his teeth and could no longer hold on to anything. This is the setting. And it tells us that this story has to do with the relationship between the farmer and the dog. furthermore, we can see that something has happened to the dog, something has changed. The dog has grown old. And so the question, then, that's posed right off the bat by this image is, what aspect of the psyche does the dog represent? And this is what we will have to come to understand in order to get a sense of what this change, this growing old, is and means. Now, it would be possible to make some inferences at this stage, but as we'll see, what the dog means in a psychological sense will become clearer as the story progresses. What we know at this point is that some change has taken place. And this leads into the second stage of the dramatic structure, the exposition. If the first question is, what aspect of psyche are we dealing with, or What is the psychological situation of this story? The second question is, what is the issue with this situation? What is the problem? As Jung writes about this stage, the situation is somehow becoming complicated and a definite tension develops because one does not know what will happen. In our story, this phase begins with the farmer's announcement that he's going to shoot old Sultan because he's no longer of any use. The farmer's wife responds by suggesting that they care for the old dog despite his age, but the farmer rather coldly dismisses the idea. And it ends with Sultan hearing the exchange and then wandering off to commiserate with the wolf about his fate. The first part of the story, let us know that this was a story about the farmer's relationship with the dog. Here, we learn that the problem is that the farmer doesn't know how to have this relationship when it's not based on the dog's usefulness. The farmer's attitude, as I pointed out in part one of the interpretation of this tale, is a merely instrumentally rational one. And so he's going to shoot old Sultan. Now, one thing that it's important to note about this stage, especially when it comes to the interpretation of one's dreams, is that it's often very difficult to identify the issue that's in question. And this is because the problem is often one that's perfectly aligned with our own habitual way of thinking or perceiving. The farmer, for example, sees the idea of shooting an old dog when it's no longer of use as being perfectly reasonable. He doesn't see the problem. He cannot see any other possibility. And he even rebuffs his wife's idea of taking care of old Sultan as being not very bright. From the outside, it might be easy to identify the problem. But from the inside, When it's our own dream and our own psychology, seeing into our own blind spots is almost impossible. It takes a great deal of humility. And it's often very painful to recognize that some trait that we admire may, in fact, be problematic. This is the great difficulty of learning to face and begin to integrate one's own shadow. When looking at this section of our own dreams, the exposition, it's essential to bring a critical eye to the dream ego's reactions to things. We may want to question some attitude or response that takes place in the dream that we feel too sure is justified or right, and to look around for some other figure who might be offering a different way of responding to the events of the dream, as the wife does for the farmer. In the case of our story, we may begin to sense that the problem lies in the farmer's dismissive attitude towards his wife and his coldly practical response to his aging dog. The next phase is the culmination, or the peripeteia, a word that indicates a sudden reversal of fortune, a change, or a crisis in the drama. Something decisive happens, writes Jung. In our story, of course, this is the section in which the wolf and the dog play a trick on the farmer, by pretending to kidnap and threaten the life of the farmer's child. This event changes the fortunes of old Sultan and creates an entirely new trajectory in the arc of the story. But this also brings up another point that I wanna make. These phases of the dramatic structure of the dream are not necessarily separate and discrete phases. There's a lot of overlap and circling back to the previous stages. For instance, at this point in the story, we learn about the existence of the child who hasn't been mentioned up until now. And this piece of information belongs, in a sense, to the first stage, the setting. It's an important part of the overall situation. But evidently, for some unknown reason, it was obscured at the beginning. It doesn't come into focus until the problem, the threat to the old dog, is made clear. And we saw this earlier as well. We saw this when the wife was introduced during the second phase during the exposition, at that moment we learn that there is a wife and that she has a different point of view than the farmer. And so we see that there's an alternative to the farmer's position and his way of experiencing the relationship with Old Sultan. Given this understanding of the overlapping nature of these phases, it's important to recognize that this four-stage structure is really just a guideline, right? It's, It's not meant to be applied rigidly. We don't have to force the material to fit the model, but we can use it as a way of orienting ourselves and of drawing out our own intuitions. Now, The introduction of the other characters, the wife and the child, lets us know that the farmer's relationship with the dog somehow involves and implicates his relationships with his family members. And this, in turn, helps us to realize that the farmer's relationship with Old Sultan is about relationship itself. This is supported by the fact that dogs are profoundly relational animals. And this aspect of the dog's nature determines its symbolic meaning and resonance. And what all of this starts to show us is that the inner details of the story are part of the story's own interpretation of itself. The story in a sense, lets us know what it's about by giving us these different perspectives, these different points of view of the wife and the child. And this is the main reversal of this part of the story, the peripeteia. The farmer's concern for his child calls forth his latent relational potential. He is called at this point, as I noted in the earlier episodes, father. This, it seems, is the factor that was missing at the beginning and that needed to be developed. And all of this leads finally to the last section, to the lysis, the solution of the story. This is the point in the story when we learn whether the outcome will be disastrous or whether it leads to some kind of creative or constructive resolution. In the fairy tale, the farmer as father has been awakened to his relational side and he's able to make room for old sultan in his home and in his heart. Had something gone awry in the previous section, however, had the farmer shooed away old Sultan or tied him up or even shot him, as he was planning to do, then we would expect to see an entirely different and ultimately catastrophic lysis. We would expect, for instance, that the child would have been carried away by the wolf and have been lost forever. Now, one of the quirks of this particular story is that this sequence, the setting, the exposition, the peripatea, and the lysis, is repeated twice. The story doesn't end when Sultan rescues the baby and is welcomed into the farmer's house. The first lysis sets up a whole new situation. What to do? about the wolf. Now, I'm not going to go into this second part of the story in detail here, but if you continue on with the narrative, you will see that the same series of phases of dramatic structure plays out. And this is not an unusual thing. Even in dreams, one set of events sets up another set of events. And This is one of the reasons that using the lens of drama can be helpful when looking at dreams and stories. Drama always indicates movement, development, unfolding. Nothing is ever fixed. Nothing is ever final. And this is how Jung looked at dreams as well. Each dream he felt was something like a snapshot of a larger story. Dreams show us how the unconscious is always in motion, so to speak. Dreams give us a picture of the situation at the moment and where it is headed. Dreams and stories, like life, flow on. Everything changes. And this leads us to what could be our takeaway here. The great benefit of paying close attention to things like dreams and fairy tales is that they help us, as I've said before, to locate ourselves and our own story in the larger archetypal story, the larger story of life. They help us understand when and how we've gone off track from that story. And they point to the ways by which we can get back on track. Dreams then can give us warnings, present us with course corrections, offer us encouragement, and give us inspiration along the way. That the structure of stories and drama bears some similarity, some parallel to that of dreams, suggests that the same wisdom that can be found in those cultural expressions can be found within us as well. And this is just the point of a story that is told in Marie-Louise von Franz's book, The Way of the Dream, with which I want to end this episode. This story is said to be a legend, and according to some sources, it's believed to be an old Hindu legend, though I haven't been able to track down the original source yet. Nevertheless, it's a story that describes a psychological truth about our relation to that wisdom that lies within us and that can be encountered in our own dreams. And it goes like this. Legend has it that when the gods made the human race, they fell to arguing where to put the answers to life so the humans would have to search for them. One god said, let's put the answers on top of a mountain. They will never look for them there. No, said the others, they'll find them right away. Another god said, let's put them in the center of the earth. They will never look for them there. No, said the others, they'll find them right away. Then another spoke, let's put them in the bottom of the sea. They will never look for them there no said the others they'll find them right away silence fell after a while another god spoke we can put the answers to life within them they will never look for them there and so They did that. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media, Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life Available from Chiron Publications Thanks for listening and take good care.